You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here on the Westwood One Podcast Network on Monday, March 26th at CRTV's Northern Command here in Central Maryland. And yes, I am in just as bad of a mood as I was when I ended last week to begin this week, although... Whereas last week, we were all Jeremiah and Lamentations. This week, we did start off with a little bit of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, Check out my post, my morning post to kick off the week on a new conservative movement, how to disentangle and disengage. It is what I believe the first, at least credible outline for a, a plan to bridge the gap between a new party Um, And just kind of staying on the ballot as a Republican, but completely disengaging. That's going to take the leadership of the Freedom Caucus and some other folks that claim to be conservatives, but still want to get reelected. The status quo is not going to work. We need to think bigger. I have a four-step plan. Um, We've spoken about it before. I've referenced it a little bit before, but I think I uh, detail it with a greater degree of specificity in this piece. So I'm going to link to in show notes um, just so... You guys could see it. Give me your feedback on social media, on email, and uh, we'll get to that at a later date because today I wanted to continue our series of Meet the Candidates. This will be our fifth candidate, and we have many more. Let me know who you want to be, uh, who, who you want me to have on the show next. Um, I've gotten a lot of good suggestions, and you know, obviously, a lot of people are losing hope. Everyone who runs, runs as a conservative. They lie to us every time. Really, it's not an individualized problem. This is a systemic problem in the Republican Party from head to toe. And I felt of all candidates, it would be very appropriate to bring on the one we're going to hear from today, particularly at a time when we're trying to figure out our head from our toes in this business. Uh, Jaron Jackson is not a stranger to the conservative conscience. This is actually his third time coming on. Uh, you know, I'm going to link to in show notes our 2016 or actually 2017 interview with him on Afghanistan. If nothing else, you should hear it. Just a great takedown of what in Afghanistan, the broader problems with war with foreign policy, which, by the way, ties very much into the budget bill and what the president was saying to sell this excrement sandwich. And we're going to get to that a little bit today. So I'm going to I'm going to list that in the show notes so you could go back and hear Jaron. If you haven't heard it, it's still among our top 10 uh, most listened to broadcasts here uh, just because it was so informative. Uh, Jaron Jackson was a captain in the military In the Army, he graduated from West Point, served in the military for about a decade. He ran for Congress in 2016 against Mark Wayne Mullen in Oklahoma's 2nd District. This is in the southeastern, eastern part of the state of Oklahoma. Um, Mullen is obviously a big leadership hack, big establishment guy. Jaron got about 40% against him, which was respectable, showing given uh, how much he was uh, just outmatched in terms of fundraising. Uh, Since then, he's opened up two restaurants, a small business owner, really uh, straddling a lot of of different jobs. He also works to find jobs for transitioning active duty members who want to integrate back into the civilian workforce. He's married to Dr. Katie Jackson, a pediatrician in Rogers County, Oklahoma. He lives there with his two young boys. And this primary for this year, will be held on June 26th. So it's coming up in a couple months. And with no further ado, we're going to bring on Captain Jaron Jackson. Hey, Jaron, how are you? Hey, Daniel, thank you for having me on. I'm better than I deserve. Well, you know, I, f- I feel the same way too. Look, as long as I have my wife and my three kids, as much as this job is miserable, it, it does continue to pay the bills. And I could con- continue to speak the truth. But you know what? 
Um, there's one thing for someone like me to speak the truth from the sidelines, from the bleachers. The problem, as I noted in my article today, is we don't have men on the field making the plays so we could cheer about the plays. But if we don't have men making the plays, um, what's the purpose? I want to start with you a little bit different from where I start with other candidates, uh, because we, we've had you on when you ran for Congress. We ha- we've had you on to discuss the issues just as a, as a private citizen. Um, this challenge against Mark Wayne Mullen, I want to frame it in the c- proper context and get your, your uh, take on this. One of the biggest excuses given for the betrayal in Washington is that, look, I understand we have the House, the Senate, and the White House, but look, Daniel, we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. So I find it interesting having you on, and part of why I wanted to have you on today is because you're from a state called Oklahoma. Now, it's a state where both Mitt Romney and Donald Trump won every single county in the presidential election. There is a 40 to 8 Republican majority in the state Senate. Now, I'm not good at math, but for those uh, who understand math, the simple arithmetic, that's an 83% majority. So there's no you know 60-vote threshold business going on there. And yet, in a state like Oklahoma, we can't even get a religious liberty bill passed, a pro-life bill passed, and prevent tax increases from, from happening. And this is what I use to frame the fact that our entire system the entire party is broken from head to toe in all 50 states. My question to you, Jaron, is with this introduction in mind, what do you expect to accomplish as one man in a 435-member body? Wow. Uh, you really kind of <laughs> coming out guns blazing with me. Uh, we don't take it easy here. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's fine. Um, I, I think the question uh, – the premise of the question, I think, is incorrect. Uh, you know, it, it goes to, and this, I, I, I talk about this in the campaign now, um, a lot of people say, you know, what can you get done? And their expectation, their frame, the, the way that they see the world is, well, what type of legislation can you get through the Congress? And, you know, if, if, if that is your frame, you know, you experience your perspective. So if you want me uh, to tell you what I'm going to get done through Congress, the answer is going to be next to nil because I'll be a freshman. I'll be a freedom caucus guy. I'll be an outsider. I won't be someone who plays along with, uh, with leadership unless they defend the constitution. So from that position, uh, you know, the expectation of, of passing through lots of legislation, I, I, I don't think should be, you shouldn't have a high hope. What you should have a high hope for is whenever you, have candidates that have a different perspective on the role of government. And I really think that's kind of the key issue is Americans have lost their understanding as far as what the role of government is. Just go back to our, you know, our, our constitution. The preamble lists the, the reasons why we formed our government. Uh, the, the philosophical reason is to defend our rights given to us by God. But then there are, are also some functions of the federal government, and those are, you know, explicitly outlined in the Constitution. Where I'm going to be effective as a candidate is I am going to bring, uh, you know, I'll just say, I'll bring millennial mischief and chaos into the situation because I think, as you appropriately identified, our, our system's corrupt. Uh, politicians, especially here in Oklahoma, uh, and I don't want to, you know, air our dirty laundry, but we're facing a billion-dollar shortage. Our teachers are going to walk out of the classroom next week. Um, we have super super majority Republicans in both houses. We have a Republican in the governor uh, in the governor's mansion, and it's just dysfunction across all levels because there's no leadership. And I think you can, you know, invoke Reagan. You need to be, you know, bold colors, not pale pastels. But where I want the listeners to really focus on is they have the power. Our founders took a big gamble when they found this country, and that was to give normal nobodies all the power in the world. And that's what I want to encourage people. Hopefully we can talk about this because I think, I think your column today, um, the one that the blueprint for the new conservatives, I think that column really is kind of a shot across the bow that people need to recognize that, We do have to start thinking differently about the way that we think, because unless we do, we're going to continue to get the same thing. 
You know, I'm curious what you think, Jaron. You, you mentioned the word millennial, and I can't stand that term because I can't stand this generation. I guess you and I are probably right. kind of kind of borderline um, in terms of how we fit in, which generation we're in. But you mentioned the fact that people have lost their way. They've gotten roped into big government. I'm curious what you think, because I have a lot of debates with my friends, you know, just strategic debates. We all agree on the issues. Is it that the majority of the country, you know, based on this building, this growing blue wave, they've now bought into big government? Or is it more the fact that we've never gotten on the map, we've never gotten on the field that an alternative vision has never really been presented in a unified, um, you know, public way with a with a broad platform of a political party that people could see and accept or reject. I mean, have they really seen it? Are you convinced that you know some of the ideas I mentioned in my new contract with America? And and you're right, we're not going to enact this stuff under the current leadership, but at least to start disentangling ourselves and identifying ourselves. Do you believe this would resonate with the current demographics? Absolutely. Uh, we, we live in a society. Yeah, yes, I do. First of all, because I think liberty is always a winning issue. It's just, you have to be able to communicate it the right way. Our society today learns with their eyes and thinks with their feelings. They do not, you know, I'll say that again, that was pretty quick. Our, our society today learns with their eyes and thinks with their feelings. So our responsibility as conservatives, as, as liberty lovers, people who want to defend the Constitution, we can't curse the darkness. We have to light a candle. I can't complain that society is horrible. I have to figure out, well, how do I change society? And I think one of the, you know, one of the responsibilities for conservatives who are running for office or who just you know, want to champion Judeo-Christian values and limited government, personal responsibility, you know, list out all the things that conservatives are, if you just want to advance that worldview, you got to have to understand how to be persuasive. You have to understand what makes a worldview uh, converting. How do you convert someone to your way of thinking? And, you know, we can talk about Saul Linsky and how he was able to disrupt and divide the joy in America. I mean, if you go read his book, Rules for Radicals, uh, the, the thesis or the hypothesis that got him started with that book was, seeing a lot of joy in the country and just wanting to get rid of it. I mean, that was a very simple question. You know, how do I get rid of this joy? And I think that we can make a case because I believe that we're all, uh, you know, we're all made in God's image and we all have a moral law written on our heart. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't murder, uh, don't have sex with someone else's wife, right? We all have similar morals that are just their baseline. It's how do we articulate them? How do we get people to start seeing that way of life? And where the conservative movement has failed, I believe, I'm, I'm an older millennial. I was born in 85, so I'm 32. I turned 33 in May. The conservative movement had Reagan in the 80s, and Reagan did a lot of good. But then it's just like as though people decided to say, well, we, we got Reagan and everyone's convinced. And we just, we rested on our laurels. And when we started to disengage as a conservative body, as, you know, the moral majority or the silent majority, whatever you want to call them, as they started to step back and, and take politicians at their word, they stopped putting their feet against the fire. Um, you asked, you know, has there ever been a united uh, contract? Well, I mean, you go look at the 1994 contracts with America when Newt, Newt Gingrich was talking about you know, what was it, eight issues that he said that pulled above 60 percent. Uh, and then if you look at the implementation of that, it was very low. Uh, I, I think when people make a promise, they're doing so based on a principle. Where we fail as Americans is, one, we may not understand our own principles anymore, which begs the question, how do you communicate our principles in a way that people will actually listen to them? Because I happen to think, because our society learns with its eyes and thinks with its feelings, that finger wagging, telling people, well, we have to limit government because the debt is really big and the government's trampling your liberty. I don't think that those are persuasive arguments using those words. But if you look at millennials today, and I, you know, I use that word just because that's what I guess everyone else uses. But if you look at the younger generation today, um, 
they don't value those words. Those words, those words have been corrupted. They've been, their definitions have been changed. And so what I really liked about your article was this shot across the bow saying we need to rethink about how we do things where I want to contribute to that is we have to understand language and its implications uh, with how people think about things. There's a big word I'll use and then I'll shut up. It's called metacognition, thinking about the way that you think. I would argue most Americans think what they think, but they don't think about the way that they think, uh, the process, the philosophy, the undergirding worldview. And these are, you know, you came out strong, so let me swing back at you. These are really kind of the bigger underlying issues that, everyone deals with it's just we don't talk about because they're not they're not soundbite issues yep. but they're also issues where you have to be firmly planted in one camp i'm not a secular humanist right <laughs> so you if, if you put yourself in a, in a worldview that is at odds with another worldview you better be ready uh, to defend your values and your views and you have to be able to articulate it i just think we've lowered the standard because we don't require that from our politicians anymore no, exactly. I mean, uh, the the biggest problem is a lot of them don't even understand the issues. They don't understand what they're getting into. So obviously, they're they're never going to preemptively sense what leadership is going to do the chicanery, the subterfuge they use because they just don't understand the issues. Again, it gets back to what what do we require as as the American people? Remember, the founders gambled on us. They gave us the power. It's, but it's hard for us to defeat giants when we think we're grasshoppers. And I think it's one of those things where the normal, average nobody in America who has seen you know, illegals pour across the border, who has seen what we're now over $21 trillion of debt, you can just see all these problems. We all know the problems, but we see ourselves powerless. We perceive ourselves as powerless because the system is corrupt. I think you've put a nail on the head or you hit the nail on the head where you say, we've got to field the right candidates. That's part of it. But then you also have to go one step back from that and say, well, how do you get those candidates? Where do those candidates come from? And that re- that demands, I argue, an engagement by every citizen to be in the trenches to know these things. The benefit is that we're right, right? The, 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 call, the case for liberty, the case for limited government is the correct one to make. It's just the hardest one to make because it's, it's a cognitive approach. It's not an emotional approach. It's, it's something that you have to understand transcends normal daily conversation. And that's just really hard for people to do because, uh, you know, if we, we create, we do, we create echo chambers where we only want to hear what we want to hear. Well, if, if you're going to go into the trenches, you've got to be ready to, to do battle with those people. And um, that's tough. That's really tough. And I think from the political side, from the tactical side, and we, we spoke off air about this, but it's the insurgency aspect of it. Conservatism is the new counterculture. It's the new mischievous, uh, you know, way of doing business because, you know, you're not going to be selfish to take someone else's money to provide you a living or to achieve your moral agency. You have to go hack it out of the wilderness. That is something that most people will not speak audibly. They won't, they won't say that publicly. They may think that, but they won't say that. And I, I guess one of, the, um, one of the assumptions is that if I say I don't want you to benefit from government, it's me saying, I don't care about you. It, and that's, I think, where yep. the left has positioned itself very, very, very well because the volume of their voice uh, connotes expertise of an issue. But then also, if you disagree with them, you are automatically immoral and evil. And that is a very uh, <laughs> powerful, very dangerous idea that we have to defeat. <laughs> the volume of their voice connotes expertise on the issue. I love that. Um, and you're right, because from Republicans, you, you see neither intellect, substance, nor volume. So it's kind of just a balloon in the wind. But I think to speak to what you're talking about, I want to get you know some of your examples. Some of the examples I put out in this piece for the audience that has it, hasn't seen it yet. Um, 
I have a document with, you know, sub bullet points to the broader principles to actually make it very specific and make commitments of candidates. But, you know, rather than saying let's cut spending, repeal Obamacare, which I think we all here agree to. But in terms of evangelizing a new generation that's kind of suspicious of our views, but if they would actually understand the underlying cause and effect, they'd agree to us. The way I expressed a lot of this is let's just give some examples here. No taxpayer funded program conceived to help the poor should be used to create monopolies for private companies that hurt consumers. And and another thing, no government mandate or intervention should be used to benefit one particular product or service at the expense of consumers. Uh, you know, we can go on and on. Put the doctor and patient back in control of medicine, not government and the insurance cartel. And particularly, and you know, you could give your examples, but on this show we've talked a lot about healthcare. And Mm-hmm. Too often the debate revolves around how much you're willing to give charity to the poor, how much you're willing to help your fellow man, when in fact, if someone would actually tell the truth, the Medicaid program is not given to the poor. It's given to a healthcare conglomerate insurance cartel that then takes that market share to further monopolize, buy up consolidate, destroy private practice in America, destroy delivery. We have some great data on that. We're going to put this out. And nobody is making this case. I'm not convinced that with a a rising generation that's very suspicious of the status quo, which is often bad because they question natural law, but it's often good because they're suspicious of these private monopolies, except it's not capitalism. We don't have to own it. We could shove it right back on them rather than just saying Obamacare, which unfortunately at this point has lost its meaning. I want to get your thought, your thoughts on that idea and how you think you could apply that to some other issues. Yeah, you're right. I think that's how we win. How we win is like, well, like, I, like I said, you have to use different words. You have, you have to use a language that either that is either a nonpartisan and and won't offend people just by them hearing the word Obamacare. Because if you say Obamacare, people are just that it automatically polarizes people, yep. like abortion. That automatically polarizes people. You you know where you are on abortion. You don't really care where other people are. You know where you are. Uh, same thing with Obamacare. Same thing with, you know, building the wall. I mean, all of these things become hyper-partisan very quickly, which is where I think um, we have to speak to morality. Now, I don't want to ever shove my morality on someone else because I don't think that that's correct. Why would I want you uh, – why would I want to force you to believe what I believe? That doesn't really make a good argument for what I believe. So, having said that – the left uses emotion very well and, you, and weaponizes morality in the sense that if you're against them, then you are immoral. Well, why don't we, like I think you're saying, do the exact same yep. thing? And it, it would sound something like this. You would lead with the why and not the how. So instead of saying we need to defund these government programs, why don't you lead with the why? Yep. My generation, the younger part of my generation, and this is what, you know, I think older folks don't necessarily get. I grew up seeing the Internet happen. I saw uh, in my in my uh, grade school years, I remember going from the, what, the three and a half floppy A, the big floppy disk to, you know, Internet by the time I was out of high school. My point is culture and technology has changed so quickly that you have to understand that the, the younger people today think in terms of the world. They don't, they don't think in terms of, well, I'm from Uloga, Oklahoma. They think in terms of, you know, what are people in Kenya doing or what is Europe doing? Or they're going to see this, this uh, joker who raises his fist trying to take guns away from people, and they're going to say, that's the kid I want to be. And they, they attribute celebrity, they attribute correctness and truth to people who grab their attention. Attention is the greatest, attention is the most valuable thing in the world. It's not money, it's not land, it's not time, it's attention. Getting people's attention is the most important thing in the world. So how do we as conservatives advance our political agenda, advance our worldview to a world that, you know, everyone's competing uh, for attention? I think we just make the case why and not how. Um, you could say, well, I would really love to be mischievous, where I would really love to be just kind of uh, combative or sarcastic, would be to say something along the lines of, you are trying to achieve 
you know, I wouldn't use these words, but they're trying to achieve their moral agency through government action. How absurd is that? You mean to tell me you really want to take guns from people because you want to reduce violence, but what you're going to do is you're going to march in the street to, to vote for politicians who are then going to go to Washington and become corrupt and risk themselves and isolate themselves from your vote, from your ballot, and, and squash any other, uh, any other political opposition. Because you, you could just say that 98% of incumbents win re-election. The system is designed for self-preservation of incumbents. And you can just put that to them and say that you want to change the world, but the path that you've chosen is a corrupt system. And I think you're exactly right. Use their natural skepticism of other people's corruption for us. That's, I mean, that's what we have to do. Our challenge is that we can't use words that come off as overtly conservative or overtly constitutionalists. Um, you know, and the last thing I'll say, well, I'll shut up. Um, the, the founders did not win our independence arguing the Constitution. They initiated our independent movement, our independence movement, by speaking the Declaration. Declaration. And I guess my, uh, yeah, I guess that, that, that principle is your movement initiates their movement. So we got to do stuff in order before they do anything. So to take this back down to the campaign level, for those that are unfamiliar with the dynamics of this race, um, Mark Wayne Mullen is probably, again, this is another reason why I wanted you on at this juncture. Uh, this is a man who was elected very much in uh, the Tea Party fervor 2010-2012. I guess he was elected in 2012. Um, he is completing his third term. And, you know, aside from obviously growing close with, with leadership, rather than fulfilling his campaign promises, he pledged term limits, which is very apropos to our discussion because this is a, an oldie but a goodie. You know, it's an old idea, but it's really it never uh, loses its muster. Uh, it's very popular with everyone. It was part of the original contract with America. I, I still think we should put it in uh, our new one that I'm you know, pushing the Freedom Caucus and others to adopt. Um, he came out and said that, you know, he's learned that obviously being in Washington, there's many good perks to being there. And he believes he could deliver more for the district by breaking his pledge. What do you say to a guy like Mullen who says, look, you know, pledge, smedge, you know, I got seniority. I could really bring back the bacon to Oklahoma, too. Well, Representative Mullen and I have very different worldviews. We see the role of government differently. And I wouldn't say anything to someone who breaks a promise and justifies it, you know, via, you know with other proofs. But if I'm, let's just go skeptical. You know, uh, I call him Money Mullen. Money Mullen has nearly tripled his net worth since he got elected in 2013. And that's based off of facts and figures that he himself has given and sworn to under penalty of perjury. Every candidate, every uh, congressional uh, representative has to say every year how much they're worth. And his has nearly tripled since he got in office. So I call him Money Mullen because I think that's why he's uh, running again. But whenever someone says, well, I'm going to bring home the bacon, uh, well, let's just look at this last week. Uh, they passed this, this big whopper of a budget buster. And uh, what came to the district, my district, District 2 Oklahoma? There's really nothing in that bill for my district. So if you want to make the argument that he's on leadership team and he has to be there and he has to have seniority and he has to do all these things in order to bring on the bacon, he sure is doing a horrible job of it. So the man is admitted a cronyist. He's admitted a uh, member of House establishment, uh, establishment leadership. But he's also ineffective at being one. You know, he, he says he wants to be on, uh, he, he is on house establishment. He admits he needs to bring home the bacon, but he's not effective at, at doing that. So he's ineffective as a Tea Party, uh, limited government, conservative guy, and he's ineffective as a big government, crony, well-connected establishment guy. And so my question is, why, why have a representative? If you're not going to vote to limit government and, and, and prune uh, legislation or, or get legislation out of the way that's bad, 
And if you're going to be on the establishment side and you're ineffective in doing that, what's the purpose? And that comes back to just cowboy boots, guns, and and uh, talking about Jesus, which uh, it's sadly, it's a sad commentary. Uh, I'm a Christian. It's a sad commentary on the Christian church where you can come to a, a district as conservative as mine, as socially conservative as mine, where, you know, Christianity by far is the religion here. And all you got to do is say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And people will automatically uh, abdicate or, or, you know, prevent any bad doing from you because they'll say, and I've got this a lot of time, and we don't have to go here, Daniel, but I've got a lot of people say, well, he's just a good Christian man. And I think, I think that's, that gets back to my first point, which is we, we, have to, we have to engage dangerous ideas because our enemy is shrouding itself in our language, in our actions, in our behaviors, so as to undermine our values. The goodness of America is, is being rotted from the inside out because our enemies know that they can't beat us one-on-one. That's World War I, World War II. They can't beat us. So what they have to do is they have to co-opt our language, co-opt our values, and use that uh, to gain a foothold, which is exactly what they've done. And, 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 you know, this is the frustration I have a lot of times. The guys will speak our language, but then, I mean, the analogy I give is <clears throat> a football game where you got, um, you know, a player coming at you, let's say running back, and you are on the defensive lineman there, and you literally don't make the tackle. So it's not just an inaction. You are downright sabotaging if you just refuse to make the tackle. So on opportunity after opportunity, whether it's religious liberty, there has not been a single religious liberty bill marked up since um, the edict from Obergefell three years ago, redefining the foundation of all Western civilization, of all civilization, of marriage. Um, we have you know people being forced to service things against their will. Uh, with their own private property, these are the most foundational of an unalienable rights. They will not protect that. Mike Lee's bill, um, FADA, it will not get a hearing, much less a markup. Nothing. Planned Parenthood, it's not. it wasn't even in contention under debate right. to not fund it. But that's what they do. They forget the opportunities they have, and we've never addressed these, and now we never address fiscal conservatism either. I mean, it's all out the window. So, I mean, that's the question. If we're going to elect enough people that are going to make the play calls and say, hey, wait a minute. So well, I, I kind of danced around the circles there because I forgot what I wanted to ask you. Um, what do you think about Mullen? You know, again, because well, the, the fact that, uh, well, we just wanted the fact that he voted in February for the first half of the budget betrayal on the bill that officially statutorily busted the budget caps. But then, and he never mentioned anything about Planned Parenthood. He's voted for that in the past. But then suddenly on this omnibus bill, which was really a lot of – I mean it had a lot of extra stuff too. But it was merely the codification, official enactment of the top-line budget goals set in the February bill. And he voted against this one. What do you take of that? Well, he voted for the bill to go to the floor – and this is going to get wonkish, but you have whenever you don't do appropriations bills, I guess the right way. Whenever you know they don't come out of committees and they don't get marked up by both parties, and you don't vote on them individually, you have to suspend the rules to put that yep. that legislation on the floor. And and so, Money Mullen voted to allow uh, the vote to go forward, and that passed by a vote of two eleven to two oh seven which means that Money Mullen was one of two critical votes yep. to allow that to go forward. And then when the vote was, you know, when the bill was up for a legitimate vote, pass fail, then he got to vote the values of his district. And again, I'm not him. I can't speak for him. I don't know his motives, but if I'm putting, if I'm looking at his service, at his votes through the lens of how do I continue to build my influence? How do I continue to build myself? then he has to win re-election. He can't win re-election by voting for a budget buster because this is a very conservative district. He can win re-election if he says, uh, it just wasn't a good enough deal. Uh, I'm not going to vote for it. Uh, so we're going to pass on this. So he voted to allow it to go to the floor 
to give it life, and then he voted against it when he was on record. So it's it's political expediency, it's it's showmanship, it's the ability to uh, have smoke and mirrors to disguise true intention uh, from from action. And then again, that's just that's just one of the challenges because the normal nobody does not know the last two minutes of what I just said. It's just it's too complicated. I, I'm sorry, I got to go run my business. I'm late for work. Oh I got to pick up the kids. I'm sick. You know, it is, it is just, unbelievable. Just, You're reminding me something. Yeah. I meant to do an entire podcast on this uh, for local elections in my neighborhood for county council. People come around and they'll, they'll knock on your door and whatever you I mean, it could be a Soros leftist. And if you would know and look him up online, you see his associations, the buzz terms he uses, the money is getting, you know, he's mm-hmm. a pure downline leftist. But. Let's say, you know, it's a conservative who answers the door and says, you know, I'm really concerned about illegal immigration, the drug trafficking in the Baltimore area. Like, yeah, you know, it's a big problem. And he'll say whatever you want. And I came and I saw all these signs for this guy. And I saw when I was dropping something off at my parents' house, I flipped out. I was like, what the heck? They they got a sign for him. And my, my dad's pretty savvy on this. I was like, you know. I said, look, if your idea of putting the sign out was that, you know, Democrats win anyway where we are, there's nothing you can do about that. So somehow this guy might be a little better. Like, you understand what this guy is. And I showed him, you know, he served on this gay and lesbian task force and this and that. And my father was like, he was so ticked. He ripped it down and then he emailed the guy and, the, you know, and then he got all his neighbors to take it down. But I said, if my dad even got roped into that. Um, and he didn't. Right. He, he doesn't support any of those values. He didn't even know. And I look at a guy like Mullen. He voted for the February bill, voted against the March one. But as you noted, voted for the procedural rule, which determined whether this would pass. I call it the the um, hope yes, vote no strategy. You enable it to get there, right. but then you vote no. Um, this this chicanery drives me nuts. Uh, and, and and it's funny, Jaron, one of the ways I knew you were viable um, is the fact that he actually ultimately did vote no on the on the underlying right. bill, right. because unfortunately, there's some great guys I know that are running. They really have no money, no name ID, no chance, and they don't even feel the heat and they vote with leadership. So I guess that means you're enough of a viable candidacy here. Um, right. So just to segue from that, a lot of people know that the people I'm going to have on the show, man, they share our values. But the question they always want to know is um, viability. So you got, I believe, what, 40 percent last time? Yeah, I got I got just at thirty seven percent with less than ten percent of the money. Yeah. So my question to you is, um, what mistakes did you learn from last time that you feel you could build on and you know run a better campaign? When I say better, I don't mean better ideas, but just you know it, it takes money, it takes an organization to win in you know seven hundred eight hundred thousand person district. Um, why do you feel you're more viable this time? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I almost don't want to answer because that may weaken my candidacy because it's <laughs> going to reveal to him my, my lessons learned. But, you know, I understand that the audience actually cares and wants to know stuff and, and cross apply across the country. Um, there's two really big things. The, the biggest thing uh, is, you know, money, raising money. I've already raised more money now than I did last time altogether combined. Um, and that had, that was an attitudinal shift that needed to change. I don't know how you, how you improve upon that. I, what I did was I recognized I needed to raise money or else I was going to lose. Exactly. That, and that's just, that's just it. Like you, you have to be able to, to tell people your values and you have to be able to say, will you be able, will you financially support this message? Are, and then just leave it there. You, you, you can't do it. But you, but you got to do it. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm so, I'm sorry. I was I was kind of trying to demonstrate what the one of the problems for me last time was that I thought it was I was raised with a work ethic that said that you get paid for your you know your wages are for your work. You have to do something in order to get paid. And I made the you know philosophical mistake of believing that if someone gave me money, if someone contributed to my campaign, then they were giving it to me. You're not giving it to me. You're giving it to my values and my ideas. Yep. You don't support a candidate because you want to put bread on their table. You give money to a candidate because you want that person to get in the trenches and fight like hell. And, and based on you know, how much you give should reflect that. 
Uh, now I get it. Most people can't drop a thousand dollars, but five bucks instead of you know a mocha frappa chocolate latte or a large pizza. Th- I mean, that's a decision. You all have a choice. But where I had to get over that was recognizing that money, that those donations, those are bullets. That's ammo, and I needed ammo in order to push the message, in order to to take down a bigger target. And simply put, one of the things that I say whenever I talk to people is. You know, I, I basically just say I'm a Freedom Caucus candidate looking to replace an establishment Republican. That frames it very quickly. It lets people know exactly where I'm at. Uh, and it's, it's no shame. And I know that whenever this hits the net and other people uh, listen to it, there will be people uh, from Speaker Ryan's office and from Republican leadership office that say, holy crap, we got to keep this kid out of here because he can talk, he's aggressive, and he's not going to be one of us. So <laughs> I completely recognize it. I mean, the last week, uh, during the last election, the last week leading up to the, the vote, uh, I had someone from Speaker Ryan's office call me um, and, and ask me if I was going to support Speaker Ryan. And I did not do the diplomatic thing and, and say, well, you know, I've got to consider it. I straight up said no. <laughs> I just said, of course not. Uh, and the guy asked me why. And I go, well, he doesn't vote the Constitution. He doesn't keep promises. And I think where we're at in this country is it's very easy to get the truth out. It's just you don't have a lot of people who are willing to speak it. But you have to recognize you have to recognize that truth needs transportation. If you're going to get the truth out, you have to be able to support it, whether that's financially or volunteering or me as a candidate and be willing to speak up. Now, that's the first thing is fundraising. And that's that's attitudinal. The second thing, I was an insurgent. Uh, spent nearly two years of my life against insurgents. I understand them. I've, I've studied them. Uh, I understand generally what makes them go. And my bad assumption was that if I went to the local GOPs, the people who were, you know, actually attending GOP meetings, my assumption was that they were actually going to do something, that they would hear me, they would see the record of Money Mullen, and then they would say, well, this guy right here is a fresh voice, he's got conviction, he's not stupid, and he's going to keep his word. You know, my assumption was people would hear me and say, yeah, that's the case. Now, by and large, that's what happened. Most people who are at the grassroots level, the GOP level here, uh, I mean, not all of them, but you're going to have people who don't like me for whatever reason, but most people, whenever they hear me, they go, yeah, I, I, I think that you'll be a great candidate. But then they don't take that next step to become an activated uh, patriot at their yep. level. They don't take that next step to, to actually get into the trenches. And I think that's where the disconnect is, because if you think back to Paul Revere's ride or to, to Lexington Concord, the shop around the world, that was a bunch of farmers and blacksmiths and preachers, people who weren't soldiers or trained professionally, but they were organized in a paramilitary effort or, you know, in in a way where that neighborhood, that community could project force uh, at a moment's notice, the Minutemen. And I think that's what we don't have anymore. We don't have the ability to project political force in an organized fashion because, uh, you know, our society today, you know, learns through their eyes and thinks with their feelings. Our society today is hyper-partisan in the sense that they use loaded terms where they automatically, they create opponents based on the words and the terms they use. Um, I, I don't like the word conservative because everyone in Oklahoma is a conservative. Everyone, oh, yeah. absolutely everyone is a conservative. But that doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't mean you, anything. You can, you can, you... Yeah, exactly. So why Go have ahead. the liability? Why... Why diminish your message? I mean, I know this show is called Conservative Conscience. It's obviously to organize within people that are already sensitive to the, right. that message. But, mm-hmm. but you know, this is – I think you're on to something that once we don't have a conservative party anyway and it's antithetical to it, when you're formulating a new movement and a new agenda – you just may as well, you know, take out some of the loaded terms and just actually have a broader right. message that's that's even more conservative, so to speak, than what we were doing before anyway. Yeah, I mean, well, so, so think about this. Think about this. What does it mean to be conservative? That, that's what, you know, everyone will ask. And, uh, you know, a lot of candidates will say, well, you know, I think we should limit government. I think we should balance the budget. And I don't think we should fund Planned Parenthood. That is not at all 
That's not at all what it means to be conservative. Uh, to be conservative means you conserve what God has given you. God gave us rights. He gave us liberty. He gave us your personality, all, all ten of your fingers. He gave, you, he gave you your sense of humor. He gave you uh, the property, the time, talents, opportunities that you have to make decisions to make this world a better place for you, your family, your community, and people that you don't know because the disposition of people who have an abundance, there's a chance that they give in a more efficient and effective manner to people who don't. The, you know, what's it, the, um, uh, the Good Samaritan. Uh, you, you can't mandate that. You can't compel compulsion. You have to be able to have that, you know, from the, from the wellspring of the heart, the mouth speaks. You, you know, that, that's where your core convictions come from. That, that's what a conservative is. A conservative is someone who recognizes that I've been given a lot by God, and I don't want anybody to take that from me. So government necessarily must be limited. You can go to Federal 51. Men are not angels, right? You could use that logic. But when people ask what that question is and they don't have that answer, that's when you get, you get all these manifestations of, well, you're like Money Mullen will say that he applies a 70-30 rule. As a businessman, he styles himself a businessman from the company his father gave him. And he says that I will make a decision, and if it's 70% that I like, I can, I can take it. That means I'll accept 30% that's bad. That's an ambiguous moving standard based on wow. your vague, uh, vague assessment of what something is. Well, what's the baseline also? Yeah, because the left has moved so far yeah. to the left. The Democrats will say, all right, we want three members of each family to get a sex change operation. So if we can get a bill out yeah. there that only one has to, well, you're pretty close to the 70-30 line. Yeah, right. And I, I think I think that's where we have to get back to. Oh, this is the point I was going to make. I'm uh, sorry, I, I got rambling. When people, man, when you hit my when you hit my nerves, man, I, I start I start engaging targets. But the uh, the point I was going to make was that you know whenever you're a conservative, you you uh, you guard what God has given us. You you defend you know your your liberty, your self reliance, those things. Um, the problem is that when when we don't hold those people accountable, it doesn't matter anymore. But if you look at what the actual normal nobody, and I've said that three times now, which is my normal, I, I think that's what we need to start calling people, normal nobodies, because there's the celebrity status of being in politics or being on the news or having your own podcast, no offense, but you know, there, there's the celebrity status of being someone who, oh, this is someone who has a platform, and then there's everybody else who wants that platform, but in the back of their heads, they know they don't have a platform or they think they don't have a platform, right? They're nobodies. The normal nobodies, even those on the furthest, farthest fringe to the left, they live as conservatives. They absolutely live as conservatives. They, they generally speaking, if they look at two types of bread on the, on the uh, shelf, well, that's gluten. So if they look at two types of kale, on the shelf, right? They're looking at kale. We're in the grocery store looking at kale. They're going to go for the cheaper ones. They're not going to go for the expensive one if they can't afford it. They're not going to make those decisions. That is a prudent decision based in the rationalization of self-preservation. I'm not going to spend money that I don't have because if I do that to an extreme, I'm not going to be able to afford stuff and, and, and to pay for myself. That is a, that is a rational math-based decision rooted in the conservation of what God has given you, which is your ability to provide for yourself. Now, if you take that to other venues, whereas, you know, I'm going to be a keyboard warrior and just launch barb after barb after barb against gun owners because they're evil and they, they want to kill kids. And like what this face says, if the NRA had blood on their faces, they'd still vote against children, right? I'm going to launch these barbs, but then whenever you see me in real life, you're going to say a word to me. Nope, <laughs> probably not. And, and that is conservative because, it's, you know what, I'm going to respect someone else who, who they are. I'm not going to get into their personal bubble. Now, of course, society has coarsened, and yep. we now have a lot of, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, college campuses or you have marches or stuff like this. But think about that. You know, uh, estimates put the, the March for Our Lives at 300,000. I read an article, 300,000 people. 300,000 people is what percent of the country? Like a, just barely a fraction. What, maybe a percent? I can't do that math on top of my head. But it's just it's a small, small part of the, of the country. Sure. My point is... One-tenth of a percent. Are, my point... Yeah, yeah. My, my point is there are hun, literally 
hundreds of millions of Americans living as conservatives in their daily lives. They, they don't want to pick from other people. They don't impose on other people. They just want their privacy. They want to be able to speak their mind, but they don't. They want to be able to provide and safeguard their future for their family or for their gay lover or for, you know, their sex change operation, whatever it is. They're living conservative principles. Our challenge as conservatives, legit conservatives, is to harness those values, those everyday values, and speak that value into existence without using words that are automatically weaponized and polarized by our opponents. Because if I can do that, if I can speak to your heart, man, I'm going to convince you every time. Put it this way. Whenever I was walking the streets of Afghanistan, when I ended up streets, when I was walking the dirt paths in the, the wheat fields of Afghanistan, whenever I start talking to people about the, the government, uh, Jairoa, the government of the, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, they would just roll their eyes and just kind of be like, all right, whatever. But whenever I get down with them, and I'll never forget, I got down with a guy that's probably in his late 60s, early 70s. Like the, the life expectancy of an Afghan is probably high 40s, low 50s. So this guy is well beyond. He'd be our equivalent of like 120, 130 year old. And the dude is still, uh, you know, harvesting wheat. He, he has a hand sickle, sickle in his hand, and he's harvesting wheat from a field that I would guarantee he'd been harvesting 40 years earlier. And I came up to him and I just kind of realized the absurdity of talking to this guy about the government. And just with everything there, he's squatting down, he's by himself, he's peaceful, no one else is around. And I just kind of realized, and it's kind of stupid to talk to this guy about politics. So I just put my rifle down. I grabbed up uh, the other sickle that was on the on the the path, and I just started working right beside him. That's all I did. I just started uh, helping him cut down his wheat. And when the field was done, which you know took us another hour, two hours, when the field was done, he came up to me and he goes, "I sure do appreciate what you did." And that was it. And I didn't have to make any argument. And I didn't have to do anything. It was just a silent force. Yeah. of being present. And I think that is something that Americans have a really hard time of putting into words uh, because sometimes you can't put it into words. Uh, and that might be deeper philosophically than you want to go, but uh, I think and, that's kind of where we need to start I want to get back orienting. to that just at the very end. We're running out of time, but I do want to get back to very briefly Afghanistan, the military, our previous discussions. Before that, just one other thing. Um, I promised I would ask this of all the candidates that come on this show uh, beginning last time we started this. You know, one of the problems that we've had as conservatives is that anyone who challenges the system, um, they dehumanize that person and they'll come after that person with everything they have and they'll throw everything usually it's made up sometimes it's half true and other times they'll strike lightning and it will happen to be true and you know often our side is terrified of getting embarrassed that the the back a guy and then you know this comes out and that comes out could you promise um our listeners anyone who might want to contribute to your campaign that there's nothing that they could dig up on you, whether it's a financial scam in your business, whether it's infidelity or something like that, that will embarrass the values that you're running on and that they would potentially support. Uh, yes, I've, uh, I'm trying to think through. Uh, there's bad decisions I made in Afghanistan under fire, um, just, just bad tactical decisions. Um, but I don't think I can be faulted for those because, you know, put yourself in the position getting shot at and your decision-making is, is, uh, skewed, uh, no infidelities. Um, trying to, man, I'm really trying to think. No. Um, nope. Um, no, <laughs> unless it's a lie, unless it's a lie, which I mean, you can, you can have anybody kind of come up and, and say anything nowadays. Sure. But, uh, no, no, and, and that's the no. thing. I, I just, I, you know, I've personally gotten burned, and many of us have. And I, you know, just for our audience, I did not share this with Jaron before. He didn't know I was going to ask it, as was the case uh, last week as well, um, with our candidate from Mississippi. So I just want to make sure, you know, that gives people that confidence. But um, what is the website people could go to, um, and where could they catch you on social media? It's uh, it's jaronjackson.com, J-A-R-R-I-N Jackson. You just type that into Facebook, type that into Twitter. I don't tweet that much, but um, that's where we're at. And I, if I could, um, 
you know, uh, I'm not perfect. So, you know, if, if we use that standard, uh, you know, all, all are going to fall short. But sure. as far as infidelities or, or bad stuff in business, no. I mean, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a really rich guy. Uh, I want to be, but I'm not. Um, but as far as is that concerned, no, absolutely not. I, I mean, look, Jeremy. Jaron Jackson. I, I mean, it just appears that nobody can control themselves anymore. So I mean, I just, I just gotta ask that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no, no. I, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, no. I mean, I, no, I, 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 there's, there's no infidelities as far as my marriage is concerned. Uh, I, I outhunted my coverage. My wife is way better than me in every regard. Um, you know, uh, and if well, shoot, how about this? You'll never hear a guy running for office say this. I have no game. So I can't, uh, you know, my, my wife was not uh, someone looking for players. You know, I'm not a player. I never yeah, was, no, I mean, I just, no I just, matter how hard I tried to be. Yeah, I, I just, uh, like I said, I mean, this has been a huge problem that, you know, so many candidates and our people, um, you know, not only do they have a hard time finding those that share, even espouse their values, but then you got this stuff and then people get so turned off by the system. So um, we'll put up the website on our show notes. One final thing, and we got to keep this to five minutes because we're running out of time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't um, ask you about this. We've been one of the few outlets to really not just give a vision on immigration and healthcare, a lot of domestic policy issues, but on foreign policy and and the use of our military. And we, you know, we certainly did a podcast together last uh, summer on this. And I'm finding that not only is our wrong-headed approach of what we get our military involved with for 20 years um, problematic in and of itself. It's turning out to be the single biggest linchpin to growing government all around. And you're going to see exactly mm-hmm, where I'm headed mm-hmm. with this. And and the president himself mentioned this. Paul Ryan mentioned this, that basically for the last 20 years, but it's been the most pronounced this past year, Republicans go up to Democrats and say, oh, my gosh, we so badly need to, to more military spending. And then, oh, but, but we're, we're going to shut it off for everything else. But then, you know, you lose your leverage, you're done. So the Democrats are like, all right, well, you know, you want increased military spending. Well, we got HHS and Labor and Department Department of, of Ed and HUD. HUD, by the way, uh, um, has increased about 20% under this budget, insane amount. And we, we – I can't find anyone in our candidates, particularly even some of the Freedom Caucus members, some of the conservatives, they're very sensitive to this. And we've been yelping about the fact that – it's not a money problem. It's a policy problem. It's a strategy problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then peppered by the, by the fact that the very next day, Trump announces that because of Mattis, it seems, that he's going to go back on the transgenderism in the military now. And I'm thinking, what the heck is the point in throwing even $30 billion more than even Trump asked for at the military if we're all we're going to do is get involved in aimless Islamic civil wars and then have – women, pregnant female Navy SEALs, and transgender surgeries. Could you explain that to me? <laughs> uh, no, I can't explain those. <laughs> but, well, okay, let, let, uh, me, yeah. let me just ask let this more succinctly. Um, <laughs> do you feel that you could be a voice, if you were going to go up there, to bridge this divide and this false dichotomy with being pro-military and endless military spending and how there's other ways to actually improve our security over and above and beside just throwing endless money at it? Sure. Um, so let's start with the basics. The Constitution gives Congress the, the ability, the power to declare war. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11. We have not, as a country, declared war since 1942. We have not had an enemy surrender to us since 1945. Every military uh, operation after 1945, World War II, has been, in my opinion, an adventure. Uh, of, of political intrigue and insecurity. We do not understand our enemies, but we project military force haphazardly uh, under no uh, banner or strategy. You can look at containment, 
you can look at counterterror, you can look at counterinsurgency. None of those win because they don't commit our forces to victory. And by that, I mean they don't commit the country to being involved and actually caring about the, the strategy. Um, counterinsurgency is a liberal strategy wrapped in military vernacular. It means we are going to give everybody in that country as much money. We're going to try to grow government uh, and make people love us um, so that they don't attack us and they are, they're peaceful. That's liberalism. That's, it's stupid here, it's stupid there. Uh, as far as Republicans uh, ransoming, I'll use that word, ransoming national defense to grow government, I, don't, I think that's immoral. I think it's immoral for two reasons. One, your national security folks are going to do their job regardless of if they get paid or not. I was in Afghanistan in fall of 2010, and I did not get paid while I was being shot at, patrolling, and doing the things that I was doing. Uh, do not use, well, we're not going to be able to pay our military as an excuse to fund Planned Parenthood or to give Social Security money to illegal immigrants. That's stupid, that's wrong, and the people who raise their right hand uh, don't serve yeah. uh, specifically for money. Money's part of it, don't get me wrong, we need to pay them, but they're not, they're not mercenaries. They're, they're soldiers because they love their country, they believe in their country, and that includes liberals. I've served a lot of people who are liberal, who are gay, who are, you know, as far as I would concern, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, but they still love their country. So don't, don't balkanize Americans just because of one thing. The second thing is our military is in a lot of places where it should not be. I challenge any member of Congress, I challenge the president himself to look the people, look the, the men and women in the eyes and tell them that their life is worth where they're at. You tell a guy who's Yemen, in baby. Syria, for example. Oh, I you know, was you, say you tell a guy. <laughs> but but yeah, Syria. Is, I was going to say Yemen, but you could say Syria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. But, but but I mean, the fact is, if you know, if a guy gets killed, you know, if a guy guy or woman gets killed, there's got to be a letter written to the parent. There's got to be a chaplain. There's got to be someone that goes to the parent, the widow, the spouse, whomever, to to console that person. Who, tell me now, who in Congress can look to that parent, can look to that son, can look to that, that relative, that friend, whomever, and say their life was worth the mission? Well, I mean, look, they we're supplying electricity and water to Raqqa. I mean, you know, make Raqqa great again. Well, <laughs> and, and so this is, this is one where, you know, uh, I mean, this hits very near and dear to me because I've had to tell uh, parents and, and, I, and I did. In 2010, I told the parents of my fallen soldier that his life was worth the sacrifice. And if I had to do that now, um, you know, I don't know if I'd make the same calculation. I would say that, you know, their son was brave. I would say that their son did something that uh, the Afghan himself cowered away from. Uh, I would say that their, their son was respected by, you know, the people in the unit. But if you were to tell me that his death help national, our national security, I, I think that's wrong. And so I think what, we're, what we've done as a society, we've gotten away from understanding the price that we have to pay for national security, which allows politicians to persuade us that it's in jeopardy. No, ex exactly. Like, and like, no. and, and I, I just wanted to get your take real quick because I, I just, we, we got to run. But um, I don't know if you're aware of it. If you follow this, it was obviously lost with the omnibus and everything. But last week, Mike Lee, together with Bernie Sanders, again, each one for their own reason, it, it is no problem, you know, finding common ground when you support the same outcome for different reasons. But put forth a resolution, um, you know, basically to clamp down on what we're doing in Yemen so we could have some sort of understanding of what we're doing. Um, you know, because basically you have a Sunni Shia civil war with Al Qaeda fighting the Houthis backed by Iran. And it's like, hey, if you don't back the bloods while you're backing the Crips, if you, you know, and well, actually, well, what, what are we doing there? And, you know, Ryan Owen was the Navy SEAL we lost going after an Al Qaeda kingpin who's backed by the Hadid government or his ties to the Hadid government that we're backing, but they're also fighting the Houthis that we don't want. But then we're fighting Al Qaeda too, and there's no understanding of what is the grand strategy. What are we? What what is the it? What are we even doing before we could debate whether we support or not? And the outcome was most Democrats voted along with Sanders and Lee. Now again, they have their own binary idolatry. When Obama's there, they vote against you know these type of resolutions, and it started with Obama. Um, Trump is just continuing it. Uh, now they vote no because Trump's president. But 
look, the Democrats will be dishonest, but as far as Republicans... Sorry there, I think we... Yeah, just lost it for a minute. Um, as far as Republicans no, here, are here. concerned, uh, it was Mike Lee and Rand Paul and the, and Steve Daines from Montana. Um, those three individuals, every other Republican voted against it. I, I, I don't understand. Is there no desire to have an operational audit and a discussion from Congress of what what are we doing? What what? Who is it we're fighting? Daniel, I want to go full force. Well, full force on what? <laughs> you have the snakes mm-hmm. and the scorpions. Which one? I mean, I, I don't get right. there. I'm just telling you, Jaron, there is no vision. There is no vision, particularly on this issue. Right. Uh, so there's a, there's a verse from Proverbs that says, where there is no vision, people perish. And in this case, it's actually true. We do not understand what our national security looks like, what's required to maintain it, uh, and what the future of that looks like. I mean, the emerging threats in this country, or excuse me, the emerging threats in this world uh, are only limited to that of the, the innovation and imagination of our enemies. And people who hate America are just as creative as Americans. Uh, the challenge is how do you articulate that, how do you communicate that, and how do you get that across, uh, which I have chosen. My tactic is to challenge any person who votes for military adventurism and tell them, would you look this widow in the face and tell her that her husband was worth, you know, dying for this operation. That's the litmus test, because if you can't do it, it shouldn't be there. Exactly. And there certainly are times it is worth it, but we have to at least have the uh, ability to a articulate what it is we're doing. You know, what's the end goal, the risk versus return matrix, the cost benefit analysis. And, you know, we, we certainly look forward to people like you that are able to do that. We're at a time. Um, again, folks, go to jaronjackson.com if you're interested in more of what he's saying. That's two R's in Jaron, jaronjackson.com. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Jaron, for joining us. And, and God bless you. And, you know, we wish you much success. Appreciate you, Daniel. Thank you. All righty. Take care. Well, folks, that was Jaron Jackson running for Oklahoma's 2nd Congressional District against incumbent Mark Wayne Mullen. We are way overboard here. But look, I told you before that we are only going to have deep discussions. We're going to do this a little differently. It's not going to be the typical, you know, candidate interviews. I want you to get a sense of what these people are about. And, you know, send me your notes. What do you think about him? What are your observations? Um, What do you want me to ask in the future? And who do you want me to have on? We're definitely going to have more people. A lot more coming out this week, by the way, on how Medicaid is creating a monopoly, the fraud of the opioid crisis, um, and what it is and what it isn't, and how open borders caused it. A lot more issues. Um, We might delve a little bit more into the omnibus and the spending levels. It will shock you which agencies and departments got a boost. Lots more to discuss. Until next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 